Now, I saw a man. Were you awake? You are now. I saw a man, not last weekend, but the weekend before, and he was in the oldest dilemma known to humanity. It's that ancient dilemma between doing what you know to be the right thing and doing what you know to be the easiest thing. I was getting out of my car, I was in a busy car park, and I heard that unmistakable sound of metal and plastic being folded over onto itself. And I know that sound personally. And so I looked around. It wasn't me. I was outside of the car. I couldn't be blamed. Um, and there was a guy. There's a, a, a guy, uh, maybe in his mid-50s, stepping out of a, a quite large white pickup truck. And he'd reversed into a smaller car. And he was visibly frustrated, understandably. Who put that little car there? He probably thought to himself, and he looked at the damage, and then he looked at his car. He looked at the damage again, he looked back at his car, and then he looked up. <laughs> yeah. And, and it, was a, it, was a busy, it was a busy car park, and there were people who had stopped, like me, nosy parkers, to have a little look. A little goosey gander, see what's going on. And then again, he looked at the damage, looked at his car, and looked up to see who was looking. And I wondered, I thought, what's going through his mind right now? The right thing? You know, you, you've probably done it before. You find a piece of paper, you write down your details, you lift up the windscreen wiper, you put it under there, you put the windscreen wiper down. You, you, that's the right thing to do. Or the easiest thing, you get back in your vehicle and you drive away. Or because people were watching, you write a note with somebody else's details on it and you put it under their windscreen wiper. And now I don't want to give you any ideas. That's not what we're here for today. Um, but I can imagine him, and I wonder if you can, getting home and telling somebody what he did, what choice he'd made, and then them saying, what on earth possessed you to do that? Just think about your car insurance premiums. You could have got away with it. Or, what in the world came over you? That's horrendous. You see, there are a limited number of people who know what choice he made, and even fewer people who might be able to hold him to account, but only he and God know what was in his heart on that day as he faced that ancient dilemma that we have all faced. And our culture, as diverse as we are, would have us believe that the most important question, when in the end justice is served, will be, what did you do with your life? Did you make the right choices? And the right answer gets you in. And Christians are sometimes heard to be expressing very similar things that make it sound like the most important question when confronted by Jesus, will be, what did you do with your life for Jesus? And the right answer will get you in. Yet, at the heart 
at the heart of Christianity isn't a particular lifestyle or a list of pre-approved behaviours to keep. I mean, Christianity does impact lifestyle and behaviour, but at the very beating heart of Christianity is the person of Jesus and God's grace. And by grace today, what I want you to understand my meaning, uh, my meaning is compassion with no earthly explanation. And at the heart of Christianity then, and Christian life, is something that God has done for us and to us. And in the end, when we're confronted to, with confronted by Jesus, his question, and especially in this passage, they don't seem to be about the choices or actions themselves, but the heart behind those choices and actions. Something more along the lines of, what in the world came over you in life? What on earth possessed you to live like that? Or in other words, friends, today, the question is, what has happened to you? And Jesus, as recorded in Matthew 25, gives us two parables and a prophetic vision. Two parables about being ready to face Jesus on that day, and then a prophetic vision of what it will actually be like to face him. What we, we begin to see is that there is a way to prepare yourself ahead of time. So I want to summarize our time together today like this. Getting ready to face King Jesus at the end of the age is the easiest impossible thing you can do. But before we get into it, let me just pray for us, and that'll be good. Heavenly Father, thank you for the shared privilege we have now of hearing your word proclaimed. Help us receive in humility what your spirit is doing amongst us. Grant me now clarity of mind, precision of speech, and conviction of heart, that I may proclaim your wisdom and not my own, for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 And so in our passes, Jesus first describes ten young women of whom only half make the right preparations. He then describes a servant uh, who, in the master's absence, didn't conduct himself in the right way. Both the underprepared young women and the underperforming servant are denied entry into the master's final celebration left in the outer darkness where Jesus says there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then we arrive at verse 31. This final prophetic teaching building on the momentum of those two parables, Jesus gives us a vision of the final judgment at the end of the world and the beginning of the next. And so verses 31 to 46 is where we'll spend most of our time. And so do keep that open in front of you if you can. 
And maybe as you begin to scan those verses again, the first thing that you might notice is that Jesus describes himself as the Son of Man. And now that's a title for God's long-awaited chosen king, prophesied of in the ancient Old Testament book of Daniel around 500 years before this moment. And I'll read just a little bit of that to you. Daniel writes this, In my vision at night I looked and there was one before me, one like a son of man. And I'll skip ahead a little bit. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. And so Jesus' vision of the end of the age is one where he, as God's king, judges every nation and peoples without exception. And as we take a closer look, Jesus describes his judgment as a separation, like a shepherd separating sheep from the goats. And it's a surprising metaphor. We might have expected Jesus to talk about separation between the good sheep on his right, the place of strength and blessing. A separation from those sheep and the bad sheep, the good sheep and the naughty sheep. But it's as if they are judged for what they are as much as what they've done. It's like the joke um, about the difference between dogs and cats. Uh, It's clear that when dogs think about their owners, they think, oh, they care for me. They make space for me in their home. They bring me food and water and consider my every need. Oh, snap, they must be God. But when cats (laughs) think about their owners, they seem to think, well, we can only assume this because of their behavior, they seem to think they care for me. They make space for me in their home. They bring me food and water and consider my every need. Oh, snap, I must be God. (laughs) Two completely different animals. And just imagine for a moment with me the weight of the world Pressing in on you in that moment as God's glorious king stands above you. And for the first time in your life, no matter who you are, how you've lived, what you've done or what you've not done, you will be certain on that day, in that moment, that you are not God. It will become physically undeniable. And there seems to be in this passage, like goats and sheep, only two types of people in the world. Those who will be humbled in judgment in that final moment. And those who have been humbled in life ahead of time. Jesus in his vision of the end of the age and the beginning of the next, through the observation of their behavior, he's not struggling to tell the difference between those who belong on his right and those who belong on his left. They are two different, completely different types of people. 
Regardless, facing Jesus for all of us will feel like nothing we've experienced before. And imagine with me again, you brace yourself. You hang on his every word, every syllable is nuclear. And to your surprise, you hear from the lips of God's king, from the glorious throne. Hey, come on, let's go home. Father's waiting. And so for the sheep, those on his right. The reward from God's king is mind-bending. It's first of all an invitation. Look at verse 34. Come, those who are blessed by the Father, take your inheritance. That's the language and reality of family, isn't it? Jesus speaking uh, to the disciples at another time says this. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Jesus is saying that in the end, God's king will identify and gather his family to be with him. His royal family, his little brothers and sisters, his siblings. Gathered from every corner, class, tribe, and nation to receive rewards and recognition. And here again, Jesus surprises us as he introduces some bombshell evidence. Look down at verse 35 with me. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. And as you look down at that list, just notice the diversity of the service that Jesus rewards. Some fed, some visited, others opened their homes, others shared their possessions, but all acted in compassion, doing what they could. And this seems to be where the servant in the previous parable of the talents went wrong. You see, in, the, in God's world, we are more like caretakers than we are like owners, more like servants than we are like kings. From the ability to pray in our hearts to the ability to grow a multi-million pound investment portfolio and everything else in between, God has given us all stuff to use wisely. Our time, talents, our cash creation itself, we are to be caretakers. To some he has given less, to others he's given more, but to all he's given some. The most wise and glorious thing we can do with our stuff is to put it to work in compassionate service. Yet, those he's speaking to, those on the right, they're confused. Maybe even pleasantly surprised. They say, who, us? <laughs> Are you sure? When did we help you? Verse 40. The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Just think about that. Think about what that means. Jesus so closely identifies with his followers, his little brothers and sisters, 
that whatever help they received, Jesus, God's king, took it personally. But the surprise seems to indicate that at the time, those acting in compassion had no clue they were helping Jesus' family. The righteous weren't trying to score points. It's as if they're saying, well, we were just doing it out of the goodness of our hearts. We were just being good Samaritans. And it does make you wonder what stories might be told at the end of the age where, unbeknownst to us, our compassionate service for the little and the least was taken personally by Jesus. And that might just mean that for us, every act of allegiance to Jesus and his soft spot for the neediest nobodies, every food parcel, every cup of water and open door, every bag of clothes, text message, every visitor's car park charge carries the possibility with it of eternal significance. You know, a person who shares Jesus' soft spot for the neediest nobodies are the kind of people we celebrate. You know, people with a soft spot for the neediest nobodies, they're willing to have their lives disrupted by the desperation of others. And those kind of people, they respond to desperate people with heartfelt sympathy, where blame would probably be easier. You see, people with a soft spot for the neediest, nobodies are the kind of people who address the needs of others as if they were their own. And don't we need people like that today in our lives, in our community? People willing to live a servant's life See it as their purpose to practically serve the basic needs of the least. The least being those who have nothing to contribute in return. Taking responsibility and taking the initiative for the neediest nobodies we can find. If we bear their burdens as if they were our own, that kind of compassion well, it costs, you know? And I wonder if that's why I often find a kind of reluctance in my heart to get too close to the neediest people I know. I mean, it's so tempting, isn't it, to kind of just go along with our culture and try and live a hassle-free, risk-averse, self-preserving life Tidy families, living tidy lives in their tidy homes, going on to lead tidy retirements. And even if it were possible to live tidy lives in the mess of this world, it won't be those stories being celebrated by Jesus. The victories that Jesus seems to celebrate are those where the family likeness, brothers and sisters, the family likeness is as clear as day willing to cover the cost of compassion, lives happily disrupted by the desperate, God's caretakers refusing to live as if we're not our brother's keeper, choosing sympathy 
and solidarity with the needy. In such a heartfelt way that the neediest nobodies can rely on us to pray their prayers with them. In fact, the distinct possibility is that as a church like Rotherham Evangelical uh, Church grows together and gets organized in this kind of compassion, we might just find ourselves becoming God's answer to the prayers of the neediest nobodies in Rotherham. Now, wouldn't that be something to celebrate? Robert Moffat was a Scottish missionary. He would encourage us with these words. He said, we have all eternity to celebrate our victories, but only one short hour before sunset in which to win them. And as Jesus, at the end, gathers his royal family, little brothers, little sisters, oh, the stories they will tell, and the surprises we will see and hear of compassion and service and provision with no earthly explanation. Yet those on the left, they receive the opposite fate. Depart from me. Get away from me. Instead of blessing, there is curse. Instead of reward, there is punishment. Instead of a tailor-made place of belonging with God's king, a fire made for God's enemy, the devil. And we're not going to rush past that. We're actually introduced to the devil and his heart in the Old Testament book of Isaiah. It's going to come up on the screen. I want us to just notice a couple of things. How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to earth. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly. On the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. You see, the devil wanted the glorious throne. And friends, that's treason. That's cosmic treason and its consequences. And you know what they say, if you take a swing at the king, you better not miss. King Jesus, overcoming temptation, sin and even death, is alive on the throne. And here again, Jesus seems to surprise us with the kind of evidence he uses to make his judgment. But this time, the surprise is not pleasant, it's devastating. And they're just as confused as the righteous. When did we see you in need and not help you? Verse 45. He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. 
the damage is done. No deals will be made on that day. No bribes will be offered or received. No explanations of extenuating circumstances will be accepted. No more chances. No more time. The damage is done. Goats cannot on that day become sheep. In life they picked their side. And it doesn't even seem like these People are particularly bad or evil. They might have been the kind of people that wouldn't hurt a fly. But apparently nor would they help one. They simply would not lift a finger to serve Jesus in compassion for the least. And Jesus takes that personally. And in the end it's a surprising picture because it doesn't seem to be primarily about what they did or what they didn't do. In the end, the evidence Jesus presents seems to be about how their lives demonstrated where their allegiances lay, whose they were, what they are, and with whom they belong. And you can just imagine them just trying to justify themselves. If we knew they were with you, if we knew it was going to come down to this, things could have been different. But I do wonder if Jesus did permit them to speak again. I imagine his response might sound something like this. You know, the problem with cosmic treason the problem with taking a swing at the king and missing, the problem with wishing him dead and then living as if he were, as if the world was a blank canvas for your own self-definition, self-expression and self-indulgence, the problem with wanting to run your life, your way, and not even considering how that feels for the one who made you. The problem with cosmic treason is that it starts as a whisper in the heart. But it swells, oh, it swells to become a chorus and a song and a mantra that grows to dominate your life. Even the good and great things you do, you do in your own strength. Even the very best things you do, you do for your own glory. Your compassion will always have an earthly explanation. You have no desire for the king. Your stony heart can't return his love. And you're indifferent to the shepherd's voice. Even now you don't care about me. Only yourself and your future. You don't belong here. It's time for you to leave. You see, in the end, the fire is for all those who cannot happily and honestly bring their lives and lips to say, Jesus is my king.
I just wonder how these themes are landing with you today. These are some of the most challenging things in Scripture. But just for a moment, I want you to imagine the morning after judgment. What Jesus had started ahead of time in his work on earth, now completed. The kingdom of God's king, now fully realized. Everything made new so that there will be a day where we will no longer cry out for justice. Because when what Jesus started ahead of time is completed, evil, injustice, greed, hate, mistreatment, violence, and the fear that comes from the very presence of those things in our world and our lives will have for us come to an end. His little ones safe, safe, home with him forever. And on that day, we will no longer face those ancient dilemmas because when what Jesus started ahead of time is completed, the right thing will be for us the easy thing. His little ones grown up transformed, fully mature, made perfectly righteous like him forevermore. Oh, and that will be the day, the morning after judgment, that there will be no more sighing, no more mourning, despair and depression, no more weeping bitter tears, Because when what Jesus started ahead of time is completed and he has wiped away our final tear, fullness of joy will be for us the inescapable experience of reality. Cloudless skies without end. His little ones are peace and at rest in him forevermore well here's the thing i don't know well i do know most of you i don't know all of you and actually even so i'm not aware of all of the ups and downs in your life right now but no matter what you're facing or what you're feeling today If this picture of perfection, perfection forevermore, is where you're heading, then brother, sister, do not panic. Do not panic. Don't give up on the king. Don't give in to the devil and his lies. Don't be afraid of the journey home in death. Don't lose hope. There is a place in the Father's kingdom. There is a room in the Father's house. There is a place at the Father's table prepared long ago with your name on it. You see, the the separation that follows judgment is eternal. 
and there may be those here today who should panic. And in ways that are still a mystery to us, there will be no more chances, no more time, no more switching sides. For those on the king's left, the time for mercy and forgiveness has come to an end. In life, they picked their side. Stunning words of verse 46. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. And of course, this isn't everything that Jesus has to say or the Bible has to teach us about life, compassion, justice, and judgment. But it it is enough for us to see that we all, we all have a problem in preparing for that day. None of us by birth deserve a share in the king's future. When it comes to the evidence of our lives apart from Jesus, each one of us deserves a share in the devil's future. None of us, none of us live the lives of compassion that we want to and know we should. None of us have consistently lived for King Jesus. And so without him, we are on course for that day and we have picked our side. And so how can goats become sheep? How can the cursed be blessed? How can rebel enemies become beloved sisters and brothers and enter the most exclusive family gathering? They can't. It's impossible. Yet the biggest surprise Jesus springs on us is grace. I'm so glad I get to tell you about this today. Because he says, Jesus says, what is impossible with man is possible with him. Grace is the most inclusive invitation to become part of the most exclusive family. Grace is Jesus' proposal to any and everybody. He says, if you will have me as your king, my father will have you as his child. Grace means that when you in your heart humble yourself, give up on yourself and come to him, He promises to take care of the rest. And that means that being ready to face Jesus at the end of the age is the easiest impossible thing you can do. I mean, think about it. After all, what does it mean to be a Christian? At the very least, it means to be humbled ahead of time. A Christian is someone who has gladly received compassion from God. You see, God saw our hearts of stone, our spirit of rebellion, our future fit for his enemies, the car crash we've made of our lives and world. And instead of blame and anger, God was willing to have heaven disturbed by our desperation. 
and with a heart full of sympathy, he took care of the rest. He bore our burdens. He addressed our needs as if they were his own. He experienced the fate of God's enemies so that we can enjoy the fate of God's king. He took the worst of it for us. After living the perfect life of compassion that all of us want to live, he died the cursed death that none of us want to die. He did that for us. And three days later, after death, on that Sunday morning, united with him, as Jesus rose, we rose. Now where he goes, we go. 2,000 years ago, in that ancient city of Jerusalem, God did everything. Everything necessary through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus to give us new hearts of flesh able to receive his love, the gift of his own spirit in us, able to live his way, and a future, a future fit for his perfect royal son. And so to put it simply, a Christian is someone who has accepted God's offer of compassion ahead of time. Compassion with no earthly explanation. Compassion that originates in the very heart of God. Life-changing compassion. Compassion that costs. You see, Jesus hasn't asked us to do anything that he hasn't already done 10,000 times over for us. Did you notice it? He saw us hungry and thirsty. And he offered up his body and blood for us. He saw us alone, far off, estranged as strangers and naked. And he clothed us in his perfect, royal righteousness and brought us into the kingdom family. He saw us sick and imprisoned, without hope, alone in the world. And he came down to the depths of the pit. You see, grace changes everything. And a Christian is someone who has received grace for that impossible change. And so no wonder the Apostle Paul said, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. You see, the difference between goats and sheep, rebels and children, curse and blessing, death and life, the old and the new, the difference is his grace. I, I just wish I could put it into words. Just think about it. God's offer of grace for his enemies, the offer of love, forgiveness, mercy, a royal future, spirit life, all at his expense, is so grand that only the devil himself would not be moved by it. You see, if you knew what God knows, and if you've seen what God sees, you wouldn't be shocked that he's willing to curse 
you'd be shocked that he's willing to bless. You see, the real surprise of grace is not that Jesus says that left to our own devices, each one of us deserves the devil's future. The real surprise of Jesus is that there is now an offer on the table ahead of time for each one of us to receive a king's future. You know, grace starts with a whisper. It says, he sees all of your mess. He loves you. You know you need his help. He wants you. His grace is enough for you. And what starts as a whisper in your heart swells and swells to become a chorus, a song and a mantra that grows to dominate your life, redirects your soft spots and loosens your grips on your stuff. And so on that day, on that day, the most important question will be what happened to you what in the world came over you in life what on earth possessed you to live like that and the christian will say grace your grace did your out of this world compassion for a mess like me did the hope and the glory of my new future with my king did your loving forgiveness for a rebel a rebel like me did and the evidence will speak for itself the righteous will will say we were just acting out of the goodness of our new hearts we were just getting in on the family business we were just trying our best to be good samaritans like big brother with his soft spot for the neediest nobodies. You see, in life, they picked their side. Their contentment to live a servant's life will demonstrate their allegiance to their servant king. And so how do you get ready? To face him on that day. Well you come to him now. For grace. And you go with him. In compassion. In life. You take up his offer. Ahead of time. It's the easiest thing. You collapse in his direction. You receive grace with the empty hands of faith. In your heart, you whisper the four-letter word that unlocks all the mercy heaven has to give. Help. You come to him for grace. Grace for the impossible. Grace on top of grace. Grace that keeps on going. More grace than you'll know what to do with. More grace than you'd be in your right mind to hope for. Grace. And church, let's go. 
Let's go with him in compassion to the neediest nobodies in Rotherham, South Yorkshire and beyond. You see, what Jesus will bring to completion on that final day, he has already begun here. Amongst us, the new has come. The kingdom has come amongst us and in us and God willing through us here ahead of time. Come to him for grace today and let's go with him in compassion. Let me pray for us.